Hello and welcome. I'm Glenn Fay, Director of Education here at the Center for Independent Studies. Well, what could be more important in education than to learn about how we learn? Researchers now know vastly more about the human brain, what makes it tick, and why some approaches to teaching and learning work better than others. At CIS, we've long taken an interest in the scientific grounding of education as the pillar of supporting evidence-based practice in Australian schools. But unfortunately, the educational science is often unknown and misunderstood. Many practices used by teachers and students are based on outdated theories, misconceptions, neuromyths, trial and error, and anecdotes. Increasing our knowledge about the science behind learning is key to advancing education at all levels. Scientifically informed practice can optimize teaching and study time, ultimately helping students to be more effective, efficient, and engaged learners. My guest is among the world's leading experts in the study of learning. I'm very pleased to be joined by cognitive psychologist, Professor Dan Willingham. Dan is professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of several books, including Why Don't Students Like School? When Can You Trust the Experts? And Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. Dan, a warm welcome to the CIS and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, happy to be here. Dan, you're, today you're recognized among the world's experts in the study of cognition and learning, but that wasn't your first path in terms of, of study, particularly in terms of practical implications about the study of learning. What got you into this space? Uh, uh, dumb luck, really. Uh, I was invited, because I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, there's an education nonprofit that was started here. Uh, and because I, was, um, because I was at the university, the head of the nonprofit, actually the founder of the nonprofit, uh, came to talk with me because he was interested in cognitive psychology. Um, and some of your that, that his name will be familiar to at least um, some of the folks watching here. This was uh, Edie Hirsch, and he had founded the Core Knowledge Foundation in the 80s, I guess. And this uh, the time I'm speaking of now, when I had been at the University of Virginia for a few years, this was sort of uh, late mid to late 90s, I think. So I met with him and we chatted and that was how we sort of got to know one another and then I didn't hear from him for several years. And at the time, I was doing very much basic research at, at the intersection of cognitive psychology and uh, neuroscience. And so I was studying learning, but I was not studying practical aspects of learning at all. It was all uh, quite technical and theoretical. Um, and then he called me and, and said, you remember I visited you that time? And uh, yes, of course. He said, well, we're having our annual conference and there's going to be five or 600 teachers there. Uh, wouldn't it be fun if you gave a talk um, about cognition to all these teachers? And I said, I don't know anything about teaching or classrooms. Uh, and they said, no, we, you know, we, we get that. We just think it would be fun. And, you know, I've got an ego like anyone else. And so I said, sure, I'll come talk to a bunch of teachers about, about cognition and then six months later, when you know I had to give the talk in a couple of weeks, and I suddenly thought, my God, what have I done? Like, I'm how am I going to give this talk? I don't know anything that would be of interest to teachers. I mean, the big thing on my mind was what could I say about learning that teachers don't already know? But I had already committed and I knew it was too late to back out. So I, you know, literally, I mean, I've been teaching introduction to cognitive psychology for over 10 years at that point. 
And so I had all these materials um, about memory. And so I, I literally just sort of went through my slide deck and picked phenomena and sort of stuff that I thought was in some way related to classrooms uh, and decided that was going to be my talk. And the, the, the really funny part of it on reflection is that I had been dating this woman who was a teacher for, I don't know, three or four months or something. And I had said before I, before I had my panic attack, I said to her, why don't you come to Nashville with me and, and watch me give this talk to teachers? Wouldn't that be fun? And you'd see what, learn about what I do. So she said, yes. And now I was like having this, uh, you know, existential crisis about that. I was not, it was going to be terrible. So like half an hour before she came with me to Nashville and half an hour before the talk, I said, you can't come. This is just going to be so bad. Please don't come. Anyway, the uh, the end of the story is that the teachers there actually found it interesting. They didn't know this content. They thought it was interesting and and useful to their practice. And so that was uh, how I got interested in education. I thought, gosh, this is my field is doing a terrible job of, of communicating what we things we know about um, how people learn to to the profession. So uh, I I started moving towards um, doing what I do now, you know, translation uh, for teachers. And so this idea about learning, of course, we use the term the term very loosely in in common language and even in educational um, contexts. But what what is the, when we're talking about learning? What's more specific there? Is it really a, a, a discussion largely about attention and memory? Is that really what it boils down to? I, you know, I uh, the, there's debate about this sometimes on Twitter, and I I can't remember whether I just wrote about it, or responded on Twitter, or whether I think I may have actually written something about this at some point. Um, I don't think it's a very fruitful conversation, and it sounds strange because you uh, our first instinct is, well, how can we how can we uh, have a productive conversation if we don't agree on our terms? And how can we study something scientifically if we haven't really agreed on what it is we're studying? Uh, but the truth is, when you have something like learning, uh, that there are there's more than one way to um, define it. Uh, I think oftentimes uh, a, a crisp definition is going to be the result of investigation rather than being a prerequisite for it. So you sort of stumble forward with a uh, a definition that has fuzzy edges. And as you go, you're learning more and you come to understand better what it is you mean about uh, what you mean by learning. This is something I, I drew this conclusion uh, because there was a lot of debate. I know I know some of the historical debates about definitions of learning that took place, uh, especially in American psychology, sort of the 40s through the 60s. Uh, and no one ever ended up really happy with the provisional definitions that they had. And so that's when I concluded, I'm not really sure this is worth it. What's well, often suggested that that adding to learning is effectively adding to the store in, in long term memory. Is that too simple? Is that too simple? That's the one that's popular on Twitter. Well, so one of the things that happens is then you have to say, well, what do you, you know, define long-term memory for me? Long-term memory, notice that long, without really noticing it, you've sort of bought into a theory. 
which is there is a, this thing called long-term memory. So then uh, it's legitimate for me to ask you, well, what do you, what do you mean by long-term memory? Is that distinct from working memory? And if so, how? Are you making a process distinction or are you making a structural distinction? Uh, I, and this is why I think getting all caught up in definitions ends up not being very fruitful because it's very difficult and probably impossible to give a definition that isn't really vague unless you implicitly or explicitly embrace a theory of memory. So you're going to have theory embedded in your definition, and there's not an accepted theory of learning. So this is an, an instance where I think, in most cases, our intuitive sense of what we mean by learning, especially in a schooling context, is, is just fine. But the thing that I think is much more important to define is what our goals are in schooling, because goals can really vary. I mean, the truth is, you know, if, if you and I and six other people, you know, sit down and start tussling about what we mean by learning, there's not going to be that much space between us. But if we start talking about why children go to school, what is our hope and expectation about what schools are going to make different for our children compared to children who don't go to school? There can really be a lot of space uh, between us in, uh, on that score. And that's what I find um, helpful to think about, because I think that those embedded assumptions, those unspoken assumptions, end up making it seem like you and I are fighting perhaps about something uh, empirical, but it really isn't anything. We're not fighting about data. We're we're just make different assumptions about what the goals are of schooling. And once that's exposed, it's much easier for us. If, even if we can't agree, we at least understand much better why it is we're disagreeing. Well, when we're talking here about learning, and we, we've we've talked here about the the pre prevalence of schooling as being an important time for learning, but is learning fundamentally the same whether we're talking about Children, adults, very, very young children. Is is learning fundamentally the same thing at different you levels? You mean sort or? of the process of learning? Yeah. The cognitive yeah. process? Yeah, yeah, I think there's much more that's similar than there is different. And I think that I'm talking about like once children are at an age where we expect them to go to school and we we think of it as different than, at least in this country, when children are going to preschool, it's typically the expectations about, you know, what is going to be learned are relatively modest. It's um, uh, it's it doesn't mean that it's unimportant, but it's things like they're going to learn how to interact with an adult who is in a position of authority, but is not a family member. They're going to learn how to interact with peers effectively. And they've got lots and lots of time to learn about that. And then there comes a point where it's like, now they're going to learn the alphabet. Like things are getting a little more serious now. They're learning, they're learning things that are more uh, abstract, things that you can't necessarily learn on the fly, things that need more intentionally to be taught. Uh, once children are at that point, in other words, they're like six or seven, uh, they're, they're, the differences between learning among a six and a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old uh, are real, but they're also the kinds of things that like anybody would sort of notice, like the ability to regulate attention, 
the ability to understand your own memory and your own attentional system and be able to use it um, a little bit more effectively, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. And so it wouldn't be true then, despite what many might suggest, that that there's, a, I suppose, a developmentally appropriate stage of learning, that that you would need to master a set of uh, of skills at a, at a given age and uh, that this follows in a sort of linear cycle. What do you make of, of, of that theory around learning? Yeah, I mean, I've written about that a, uh, a couple of times, and I think that's uh, a, a, a version of a theory of cognitive development that is mostly not embraced anymore. It's a very Piagetian view. So view Piaget offered uh, what is almost certainly the best known stage theory that, um, and what characterizes stage theories is that the cognitive system undergoes a sort of rapid reorganization. And it might happen at slightly different times in different children, but the stages happen in predictable sequences. And the important thing is that there's, there's this period of stability where the child puts thing, puts the world together, understands the world based on one set of principles, and then something happens and there's a reorganization and there are different principles that the child is using to learn and to organize the world. Um, and what uh, a lot of research in cognitive development through the 1990s and 2000s especially showed is that stage theory is really not the right way to think about it. There's not this rapid reorganization and it's wrong in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the most important is that there's much more variability within a child. So when a child is coming to understand a new concept, um, they'll, they'll, sort of, they'll one day look like they're understanding it. And then a couple of days, it looks like they've totally not getting it anymore. And then they understand it again and so on. So there's not, there's not this sort of seismic shift. Um, and the other thing is that it's patchy. Like, you know, if there's, if you have this cognitive capability that you didn't have anymore, the prediction is that you would see that capability deployed across all sorts of different tasks. And instead it looks really patchy. Initially you understand this new idea, you know, take sort of a classic um, uh, developmental principle like conservation where the child understands that an amount of liquid may look different in different vessels. If it's in a tall, skinny one, it kind of looks like there's a lot because the, the water level is high, but it, compared to a, uh, a flatter um, with a, a vessel with a bigger diameter. Uh, so coming to understand, oh, that's the same amount of water. You just put it in a different, a different vessel. That doesn't mean anything. It's still the same amount. That sort of uh, capability, uh, you would think like, oh, once you get it, like you'll get it no matter how that, um, you know, which vessels are being used. That turns out not really to be true. Anyway, it's getting to be a long answer here, but uh, I think you get the idea. Stage theories are discredited. And so um, the, the idea that we need to respect the stage of development that a child is in doesn't really apply. That was, you know, the way the uh, developmentally inappropriate is frequently invoked is the idea is like you're you're pushing something on them that they can't possibly understand because their mind is just not ready to do that yet. But if you wait, 
then that shift will happen and then it'll be easy for the child. So like, this, what you know, the way you're instructing the child doesn't make any sense. Uh, but if stage theories aren't right, then that argument doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and what I argued in this article is that um, what's much more important is what the child already knows. Like, you know, so the counter that people frequently say is like, so you would teach calculus to a preschooler? And the answer is no, because they don't know any math yet. Like they don't know any precursors. So why would you try and teach them calculus? That's sort of, uh, it, it, that's, I agree with you, it's silly, but maybe for a different reason than you thought it was silly. So it's not uncommon for there to be misconceptions and misunderstandings about uh, science of around learning, uh, particularly neuromyths. Uh, possibly the the most widely understood is is that of learning styles. Why is it that there's so much persistence to to these kind of ideas in education? I think there's persistence, you know, for for learning styles in particular because. Uh, this is something that has become common knowledge in the public. It's not that it's just teachers who think that there's scientific evidence for the idea of learning styles. Um, everybody thinks it. And so to me, I, I, I get asked this a lot and I wish I really knew what the answer is, but I can only, I can only speculate. I don't know of any really uh, systematic research on this. And it's not the kind of thing a cognitive psychologist would ever know how to study anyway. But my my best guess is that it's become one of those things that you don't think to question because everyone just knows that it's true. Um, you know, my my example for myself is like, how do you know there are atoms? I'm like, honestly, I I you know I don't. I mean, it's just like everyone says there are atoms, so I kind of figure there must be atoms, right? That that's a that's a good model of matter. But I haven't like looked into the original research papers that demonstrate that. Um, and I think I think learning styles theory sort of has that status. Um, you, most people don't think to question it. Well, this is quite common with the the TED talking tour, and uh, and uh, sometimes it's even your futurists and others will often talk about um, effectively hacking learning, finding ways that 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 make learning much more easy. Uh, there's commercial products often produced as well uh, that promise to train your brain, this sort of thing. What do you make of those? And because you talk a lot in your in the most recent book about outsmarting your brain effectively. How do you marry those ideas? I mean, and I also, yeah, I talk about outsmarting your brain, but I also say, you know, this is, there's going to be a lot of work. There's just no getting around it. What, what outsmarts your brain really allows you to do is make the work more efficient you can you can get better efficiency, um, making it easy. The subtitle actually says like how to make learning easy. That really you can't make it easy. <laughs> I probably <laughs> I probably should have put my foot down about that subtitle because that that is really misleading. It's not you know you, no one can make it easy. Not not even me uh, who wrote the book. Um, so yeah, I mean, when when someone promises like, oh, learning will be really easy, then yeah, I mean that that's that's almost certainly not right. The 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 other thing that you alluded to, the brain training, um, you hear a little bit less about that now than you did say five years ago, uh, with with companies like Lumosity and um, that where you have these games that you play on your phone, and then you you know if you play the games, the 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 usual promise was that. Uh, working memory capacity would improve and and working memory as the sort of nexus of cognition. Um, if you really could get more working memory capacity, that would be a great thing. 
Um, but those those products have not lived up to their promise. So you describe schooling in the book as mostly being about listening, reading, and taking tests. Uh, so that's sort of your verbs, I guess, of of schooling. You alluded in the beginning that, and, and sorry to interrupt, but I I want to be clear about this because I've, mm. I've a, couple, a few people have asked me about this. Like, do, is is that does that mean that's what you think is really matters about schooling? Mm. And my answer is not necessarily. I wrote the book about listening, reading, and taking tests because those are what I take to be the most common features of most schools. I think most kids spend a lot of time in those three activities. Uh, And so those are the things that I wanted to offer help. Doesn't mean that I think that's the best way for all children to spend their time. I'm not staking a claim about what I wish curricula looked like. Well, if if they're the verbs of schooling, what what should some of the outcomes be? If um, you know, we, we've noted that that, uh, that there's a difference between, I suppose, learning broadly and the outcomes of schooling. Uh, what what, in your view, are some of those outcomes that we should be seeking? Uh, I don't really uh, comment on that that much. I mean, in because I think that's really up to governing bodies to decide. So, I mean, every every place that has public schools has some body that is responsible for deciding what the content is that children should learn. In some countries, that's very centralized and everybody, you know, all children within a country are expected to master the same material um, within, you know, within the same school year. In the U.S., it's very localized, uh, and so local bodies decide what what children should learn. And I don't really comment on that because I feel like that's not the that's not the place of a cognitive scientist. It all depends on what you think is important. There are people in this country who think um, the most important goals are economic goals, and that school is about preparing children for the workplace. There are other people who think the most important goals are civic goals. You are preparing future citizens. You know, cognitive psychology has nothing to contribute to that sort of uh, debate. But one thing that you do comment on, I suppose, is is this question about the role of knowledge within curriculum and the importance of building upon prior knowledge uh, in order to access many of those outcomes. One, one of those might be having great critical thinkers, you know, that uh, allow provide you know young people the tools that they need to be able to encounter the the challenges of the world, uh, be good problem solvers, that sort of thing. Do you think that, particularly in the modern age, that some of the discussion about knowledge uh, is short sighted, particularly a lack of a, a need for more skills rather than more knowledge? I suppose. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, it it. Uh, I hear a little bit less of that than I did, say, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was very common uh, for me to hear, like, well, you know, we have Google now, so you don't, there's really no re- need for uh, children to memorize things, commit things to memory. I I feel like I hear that a little less often. I mean, that's that's just an observation. That's, uh, sort of, I don't attach particular importance to it. And I certainly talk to teachers all the time who said, oh my God, my principal said that last week, that there's no reason for children to memorize anything. Um, but yeah, this is something that a cognitive psychologist will tell you is a is a inaccurate and and probably destructive idea. You if you want children to think well, um they uh they need knowledge in the head as well as Google. Google is it Google is much better than looking things up in books. 
And that's one of the reasons why people, especially people my age uh, who remember not having Google, uh, are so impressed by Google because it's, uh, you know, when you were looking things up in books, you might not even have the right book on your shelf to, to find the information that you wanted. And Google, of course, has pretty much everything. And it's very, very rapid compared to looking things up in books. Uh, but your brain has two advantages over Google. Your brain is actually faster even than Google is. Uh, and that speed matters um, because people have only so much patience for looking things up. Even if you may, even though, again, it's much easier, you probably have a lot more patience looking things up in, on Google than they do looking things up in books because it is much easier. But Google's still a pain because you have to stop what you're doing, stop your train of thought. Go try and find the right information, then you know, sort of restart. Uh, but if you've already got it in memory, it all just happens seamlessly. The other um, thing that that advantage that your brain has over Google, at least for the time being, is that Google is not very good with context. And when you look, your brain is very good with context. And it uh, if so, if you're reading something and uh, something comes up about seashells. You, you know a lot of properties about seashells. You know where seashells are found. You know that sometimes seashells have a little bit of sand in them. You know that if you hold a, seashell, a big seashell up to your ear, you hear a roaring that sort of sounds like the ocean. You know that they're brittle. You have all this in, uh, information about them. Uh, and your brain is great at bringing forward to consciousness only the property that is relevant in the context. So if I said to you, why are you bringing those seashells into my house? I just cleaned the floors. You immediately understand that what I'm talking about is a lot of times there's a little bit of sand clinging to seashells. If you don't understand what I'm talking about and you go to Google and type seashells, it's going to be a while before you get to the right part of uh, the right information there. So your brain's great at context. Uh, and this is, uh, that's a, a quick rundown of the two most important reasons why uh, knowing things is actually re really, really important for cognition. Well, that might be true, say, for the, in the Google case of retrieving a, a, a fact, um, you know, a, a quick Google search for a piece of information, particularly if we have some context, perhaps it's useful there. But what about in the context these days about chat GPT and, and other generative AI? This is, this is really, I suppose, the frontier there and again, the same arguments are often heard that, well, if we can produce strings of seemingly logical and seemingly cogent text, surely we don't need to think as much for ourselves. That's a uh, that's a strange argument. I, I actually don't understand that. I mean, I can see why you would say, I guess I don't need to teach children to write. Um, I don't know how you would get from chat GPT to we don't need to think as much. Well, if it's possible to produce a line of argument that seemingly aggregates uh, the existing information on a topic, uh, do we still need to learn all of the content around a particular concept or topic? And what I suppose there's a risk, isn't there, that if we were not to know the context that you've already highlighted there as being so important, you know, what, what if we I were mean, to... Am I going to understand what chat GPT produces? Exactly right. It sounded like an argument. There's no need to because Chat GPT has it covered. But I get. I I guess that wasn't the argument. Um, I 
I've not heard I've, I've not heard that or I've heard lots of concern about chat GPT, but it's it's mostly concerning um, you know, what is this going to mean for teachers if students have access to this to this tool? Um, I'm less worried about it because uh, my feeling is, yeah, you know, right now there's going to be some figuring out, but teachers are pretty resourceful and experienced. And I think they're, you know, most of the concern at this moment is how do I either capitalize on this in my own teaching and make good use of it or how, or it's not mutually exclusive and, or how do I, um, ensure that when I give a writing assignment, students aren't using chat GPT in ways that I have not allowed. And in, in both cases, I feel like yeah, teachers are going to figure that out. And like they're, they'll, you know, share information with one another, which is happening much more than it did even 10 years ago. Uh, so I feel like that's going to shake out. I, I don't, I haven't heard anyone making seriously the argument, this should change what children know. Like there's no reason for anyone to learn how to write anymore because now we have chat GPT. I've not heard that argument. Your research in, uh, is of course incredibly important to the work of teachers. What are some of the the questions that, that teachers pose to you about, uh, about the work you do and, and the implications around cognitive psychology? Uh, it's very varied. Um, you know, some some of the questions that I get, most of the questions are usually start with, I've got this student and, you know, they, they just sort of want to talk with me because there's some aspect of the student's cognition that is puzzling to them. And so they, they you know, they just sort of want to bat it around with me and, and try and work it out together what, what's um, uh, why this student is, you know, having trouble with a concept or, or behaving the way they're behaving or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, in terms of like, you know, bigger picture things, it's, uh, there's just a lot of variability. I mean, there, there are as many questions as there are teachers. So I don't, I don't think there's anything that consistent. And do you think students know enough about how we learn to make the most of their study time? Uh, it I seems hope to me not, because that... I wrote a, I wrote a whole book <laughs> of that. I sure pretended that that was a problem. So I really hope they don't know very much. We actually do have uh, we actually do have data we um, from high schoolers, I think, and this is mostly American, and there's some British data as well, uh, and then lots and lots of data from college students, uh, all indicating that yeah, they're not they're not very knowledgeable. I mean they. They know some things about how their memory works. And, you know, children as young as sort of four or five start having some meta memory awareness. They they recognize like if you if things get repeated, you're more likely to remember it later. But in terms of really being strategic and shrewd about things like studying, things like knowing when to stop studying, you know, evaluating whether or not you've really learned something taking notes, all those things. Um, yes, they're not horrible because I mean, these are, these are surveys of students who are in high school and are doing fine. Uh, or there are students who are in even more of them are, you know, surveys of college students. So these are, you know, some of the really successful students in the system. They've graduated high school. They're, they've gone on They're you know, they're doing okay in college. Um, and so this is sort of brings us back to what we were talking about at the at the top of our conversation. It's more a matter of efficiency. They're they're using methods that kind of work, 
um, but they're not very effective. And the in in the book, I I draw the analogy of uh, they sort of do push-ups on their knees. That and the reason they do the or the mental equivalent of push-ups on their knees when they study. And the reason they do that is when you're doing push-ups on your knees, it feels very effective in the moment because you're doing lots of push-ups, and it has the added benefit of it's not even that hard. Right. But we recognize in the physical world that a challenge helps and you'd be better off doing regular push ups or even like some kind of fancy, really challenging push up if you're if you're trying to really build um, build strength. And the same thing is is true in when you're studying um, the the study techniques that are most effective do feel difficult and they feel often they feel in the moment like they're not working very well. So is this why we must outsmart our brain, I suppose, because you, you make the point that when we think we know something and we continually go over the same concept, it feels like we've made more progress than perhaps we really have, whereas it's the challenge that that's so important. I, I, in my view, that seems to reflect uh, a, a distinction between the idea of learning as being difficult and learning as being natural. Is is there a, is there a parallel in the way that those issues are dealt with? I think learning is both. Learning is natural in that we're learning all the time, but there are moments where you have particular learning goals and you need to take on activities that are going to make it more likely that you meet your goals. So when people say learning is natural, they're not wrong, but that doesn't mean that um, the activities you engage in are going to lead to the type of learning you're hoping for. I mean, it's a little bit like saying, uh, you know, our uh, uh, you know fitness is natural. Uh, in one sense, yes, you know, your your body can adapt to whatever it is you ask to do. Uh, I usually don't use so many fitness analogies because frequently they're <laughs> misleading. But in this one, I think I, I think it's apt. Um, you know, you, uh, just because you're hoping for, to be able to run really fast or to be really strong, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, but that doesn't mean that fitness is unnatural. It just means like, yeah, your body adapts, but you have to challenge it, uh, to get it to adapt in a way that's going to help you meet your goals. Do you think there's a role for whether it's, it's in school or, or in, or in college to teach students about how we learn? Oh God, yes, yeah. I mean, absolutely. There, there's more than a role. I think it's what you know. What I, I can't remember how directly I argue this in the book. I think fairly directly. Um, to me, it's very peculiar that we don't because there we increasingly have this expectation that students are going to be able to regulate their own learning. You know, think about it. At some point, children for the first time hear okay, there's going to be a spelling quiz on Friday. Like, here's the list of words. You need to learn these, and then we're going to see whether or not you've learned them. Um, and so that's obviously an implicit expectation that students know things they should do to commit things to memory. Uh, and, and then likewise, like, what, you know, children start getting sent home with texts that they're expected to read that are not in a narrative form. You know, children at school learn how to read with stories and expository text that's not in a narrative format really ought to be dealt with in a different way. You want to bring different strategies to bear on that kind of text. Uh, are they 
always taught how to do that independently? Uh, the answer seems to be almost always no. And uh, yeah, given given that we're asking them to do it, like let's teach them to do it. It seems sort of obvious. Well, there seems to be a good textbook that they could use for that course, at least. Uh, I'm uh, with you 100%. <laughs> I think that's fabulous. Everyone should have two copies, at least. <laughs> uh, look, let's let's get to some of those those key pieces of guidance, uh, particularly for students when they're they're in a class, but also for students if they're you know preparing for things like exams. Uh, so during a class, um, it's many people have been in a situation where you're trying to split attention between a speaker and taking your own notes. What should we be doing there? Focus on the on the speaker or focus on the note taking? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you really have to do some of each. And uh, what I argue in the book is that it sort of depends on what it is you're trying to get out of this class. Uh, and I draw a distinction between, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the extremes. Um, on the one hand, you could have a class uh, where, for example, it might be a briefing right before you're in a biology lab. And you're about to execute a lab and you've got lab instructions about how to do the lab. And the teaching assistant or the instructor is giving some final information and guidance about how to execute this lab. This is an instance where you really need to get these details and you really need to make sure that you, you get this information precisely and you can worry less about thinking about the big picture and deep understanding. Right. What really matters is getting the details. At the other end of the spectrum, you're taking a class. It's a creative writing seminar and it's you and nine other students. And every class is devoted to uh, critiquing one of your students short stories, which you've all read at home. And so you're talking about technique and all how much are you going to like, you know, do furious note taking? Like really what you ought to be doing is listening. And occasionally you'll get some insight that you think is relevant to your own work that you want to write down. And so you'll do that. So I think of those as the ends of a spectrum of, you know, in one case, it's all about meaning with just occasionally you pay some attention to note taking in detail. And then the other end of the spectrum is completely different. So what I encourage students to do is think about, you know, balance your attention according to what you think is really important in this class. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. And is that better? We using should I be using a, a laptop to take notes or or uh, old fashioned pen and paper? Yeah, a great question. So there there are two things to think about there. One is on the dimension I just described. If you are a proficient typer, you can obviously type much faster than you can write. And so if you're in that, I need to get all the details thing, typing seems to make sense. That's that's only one factor, though. The other factor is whether you're going to be distracted by availability of the Internet. That, in most settings that I've been, is a huge problem. And um, Wi-Fi is always available. So you can't, uh, unless I myself as the student, I'm going to turn off Wi-Fi. The instructor usually doesn't have the option to turn off Wi-Fi and ensure that their students stay on task. Uh, so to me, this is, you know, say, saying to yourself or saying to your students, now, listen, I know that you're, you know, going to be tempted to go shopping or, you know, get on social media, but just take notes and that's all you have to do. 
this to me is like, you know, you've got a friend who's got a drinking problem and you take them to a bar and say, we're just going to have wings. Okay. Like we're not going to have, you know, it's just a bad idea. So uh, all my classes are device-free classes. And um, I do tell students, you know, if, if you feel, you know, real, this is because, and I talk through all of this stuff that you and I have been talking about and in a little bit more detail, uh, I say, this is, um, this policy is for your success. If you really feel like you're going to be more successful in this class, uh, taking notes on a laptop, let's have a conversation about it. So I definitely leave open the possibility they can do that if they feel like that's just better for me. I know myself. Uh, but I encourage them to give hand note-taking a try, um, in particular because of this distraction issue. And of course, there are students who have accommodations where they really they really need to be taking no, uh, notes on a laptop. That's part of the reason. Part of the reason I do the invitation to have a conversation with me is because I you know I legitimately want students to talk to me if they've got that concern. But part of it too is I don't want to make it so obvious that anybody who's using a laptop must have accommodations because that's a privacy thing. And you know, it's not up to me to um, sort of reveal that to the class uh, indirectly. So it's quite common when you complete a lecture or you finish, not, not one of your lectures, of course, but or if you come out of a corporate meeting or something, you often, or you've just had a presentation at a seminar or something. And more often than not, you, you if you were asked about it, an hour later, you probably can't remember much more than the opening overview slide. How can instructors or presenters uh, create better recall for attendees or students? That's a big question because there are, there are lots of things that you can do. Um, and so I'll, I'll give a I'll give a brief and and very incomplete answer to that. Um, but you know, principles of memory are are pretty intuitive, uh, and it, it's just a matter of capitalizing on them as a speaker. If you want people to remember things, you repeat them, and you help you um, make sure that they understand the big the big picture conclusion, and you repeat the big picture conclusion. Um, it's not complicated. I mean, people uh, people forget the important message of lectures being candidly like that, that was not a very good talk, right? I mean, that, that's what that means. That was, you were bored um, and the person was confusing and that's, that's why you don't remember it. it. It's, it is interesting. And this is something I've noticed. I, I've absolutely am guilty of this as well. I'll go to a professional conference and someone will say, Oh, you went, you know, you went to see Faye's talk. How was it? He was, it was terrible. He was a terrible speaker. You know, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. And then I give a talk and like, I'm like, this audience is terrible. Like they're not listening. They're not following me. Right. So they don't get it when I'm talking, it's all their fault. But if I'm not entertained and interested, that's not my fault that I'm not paying attention. Right. So this is something I always, you know, like to point out to people because we can all identify with this. Um, and I do think the burden is on the speaker. The speaker really has the easier job. It's much easier to talk than it is to listen. So um, I think I think when people are bored, it's my fault. <laughs> never, never. I'm sure. Uh, uh, just some final yeah. ones here for <laughs> you. Don't know <laughs> some me. Final ones here for we just met. <laughs> A few for students here, because students often often um, are faced with some challenges when it comes to preparing for exams and, and test taking 
obviously is, is one of the things that as a society we do really value. Um, so a few, a few, I guess, tips and, and misunderstandings here. Uh, how effective is it for us to just reread uh, the material that we've covered? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the most common strategy uh, in surveys when you ask students, how do you study? Uh, and I'll also say from that anecdotally, that really fits. So when a student comes in to my office hours and says, I'm, you know, I'm very frustrated, I'm working so hard, I don't know what to do. Uh, the first thing I always do, I always ask them to bring in their notes and, you know, really talk with them about all the different things that go into studying. And when it comes to trying to commit things to memory, reading over my notes is and reading over the textbook is one of the main things. It's bad in two ways. It's bad because it, um, uh, it it's not a very good way to commit things to memory. Your, your mind can really skitter over what you read. I mean, we've all experienced this. You're, you think you're reading something, you get to the bottom of a page and you realize I've been thinking about lunch. I mean, I just have not been processing this at all. And so the the act of deciding I'm going to reread, that's the way I'm going to study. It doesn't guarantee that you're actually going to think about meaning and mean that's what's going to help things stick in memory. But it's worse in a second way, which is much more insidious, which is that we've we've meant uh, familiarity has come up. Uh, rereading makes things more familiar. And so uh Facts in a book become more familiar. Explanations it it feels like you're under you understand because you know you've seen it before, um, and so that leads you to conclude that you yourself could explain it. There's a big difference between understanding when someone else explains or when you read and being able to explain yourself. And of course, that's the standard that has to be met on a test. So yeah, rereading is is bad news. How about uh, highlighting key points or using sticky notes, these sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the highlighting is uh, has sort of the same feel. And again, this is both of these notice are sort of push-ups on your knees types of activities. They're not very hard to execute. And it feels like things are going pretty well when you're doing it. When you're rereading, you get this sense like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm improving. Things are getting better because things are getting more familiar. Highlighting has some of the same characteristics that it's very easy to execute and it feels efficient. It feels like now I'm, now I'm, you know, um, figuring out what I need to revisit later. Uh, but when you think about it, how likely is it that you really know the most important things to highlight when it's your first time through the text? Uh, unless you're, so highlighting makes sense. If you're, if you're an expert, if you're reading a text on something, you know, a lot about, you are able to figure out what's important about it sort of on the fly as you go. But if this is new content to you, if you're a novice, you're, you're probably not going to get that right. And highlighting is especially bad for drawing connections between parts of a text that are separated by a few pages. So it could be you're reading something on, you know, the history of Western Europe and the start of World War II. And there are like four different, you know, themes and reasons about the start of World War II and, uh, and the Western Front. And those four reasons are separated by several pages. But you're supposed to draw the connection that those are all connected. Highlighting is not really good for that. A final one. It's possibly the 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 one that uh, a lot of students face it the, in the final hours before an exam. Uh, is it worth cramming or not cramming? Well, whether it's worth it or not is a judgment call. What, what we know is that if you cram, 
Uh, it definitely helps memory for the test, but it's very bad for memory in the long run. Uh, so what I tell my students is, look, if you're an engineer and you're taking a music appreciation course because you've got a hole in your schedule and you really don't care if you remember this content at all, but you do need to pass the course, I kind of understand why you cram. You know, if you're, that's not your priority, your engineering courses are your priority. Um, I get it. Uh, you know, it's not ideal. You've been hearing, you know, since you were a little kid, don't cram. On the other hand, if you're taking, you know, materials engineering 101 and next semester you're going to have to take materials engineering 102, you are a damn fool if you cram because you're going to be expected to remember that material months from now. And if you cram, you won't. Well, we've certainly learned a lot in the last uh, half hour or so about learning. Dan Willingham, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. For decades, the CIS has been a fiercely independent voice, working tirelessly to deliver evidence-based public policy, especially in the critical area of education. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and click the notification bell. CIS relies solely on the generosity of people like you to help us advance our cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved.